Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a special event in the Edition Wars podcast where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. On this, the third day of Edition Wars, we're talking about the second edition Dungeon Master's Guide. So, the second at DMG um, starts with a foreword by uh, David Zeb Cook. Um, there's a really important thing here, and it's important because it's one of the through-line rules of all of Dungeons & Dragons, forever and ever, amen. And it is the reminder of what sets uh, tabletop gaming, and especially D&D, apart from card games and board games and video games. Um, and that is uh, a paragraph here where uh, Zeb Cook is, says he is often asked for the instant answer to a fine point of the game rules. More often than not, I come back with a question. What do you feel is right? And the people asking the questions discover that not, not only can they create an answer, but that their answer is as good as anyone else's. The rules are only guidelines. And so the point here is just, I, I still hear a lot of people say that if you change the rules, you're not playing D&D anymore. And that is manifestly in conflict with the text of the book. Mm-hmm. The text tells you to go forth and change stuff if that's where your heart leads you. And they're going to keep saying that. That's that's what Gary said. That's what Zeb said. That's what Jeremy Crawford says. Mm-hmm. That That is literally the rule. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess you could change that rule if it pleased you somehow, but you're still operating within it if you do. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is rule zero, right? Indeed. It, it, we have we have called it rule zero forever and ever, mm-hmm. and yet somehow it is still controversial to understand well, that all rules are guidelines. Well, because I feel like rule zero often gets interpreted as the DM's word is God. Right. And that's not actually what rule zero is. That's just a description of DM fiat. Right. That is, whatever the DM chooses at the moment is good for the game. And that's not what Rule Zero says. Rule Zero says that if something that is a rule, quote-unquote a rule in the book, doesn't work for your game, your table, your campaign, your players, yourself, then feel free to change it as long as you are doing it with the intention of everyone having fun. Yep. Because the rules are guidelines and not manacles. And so... Um, I guess what I want to say about this book before we get into it is that um, probably more than any other single book um, in the entire history of D&D uh, up until we get to one where my work is published, uh, <laughs> which, which we can't do as of this recording, you know, maybe someday. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this is the book about which I can be least objective. Um, this book is my childhood. 
and a lot of I've heard so many people say that about the first at DMG, right? That mm-hmm. that they spent just years and years combing over every turn of phrase and every table and you know finding something new every time they open it, which is still very possible because that's what that kind of organization gets you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Okay. It's like walking into my basement, okay? <laughs> you never know what you're going to find down there. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is your basement is like a box of chocolates. Uh, that It would be nice if that were less accurate, but here we are instead. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I remember so many uh, afternoons, and th- this includes when we go on vacations and everything, just – Reading all, all all of the you know holy trinity of second ed over and over again, but especially the DMG, um, trying to like, get its whole thought pattern to imprint on my brain in a way that I could use it. Try to you know, penetrate the veil of its mysteries um, and find out what I wasn't understanding. And it wasn't that I had these big questions that I could have phrased of, well, what am I supposed to do here? It's that um, I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. But I was pretty sure there was something. Um, And so I just read it over and over again. And uh, I personally still find it to be a very entertaining read, uh, especially with some of the little bits along the way. there are a lot of, you know, uh, brief bits of, you know, quote unquote actual play dialogue in the text as mm-hmm. examples, and uh, those have their own kind of hold on my imagination. Um, there's a a story about um, how characters of different alignments like engage with. A, a combat and the treasure that follows on it um, that you know w- will always entertain me um, that kind of thing and there's just so much of that in this book um, but as with the first ed DMG just going through the table of contents is a really weird ride <laughs> um, mm-hmm. there are places where it just seems to skip all around but um, well, and, and let's be honest, this table of contents also, uh, shows you that in second edition, we did not leave the idea of the DMG being a sort of textbook True, uh, because this, this table of contents, first of all, is ridiculous just as the first edition DMG was. And I mean that in a loving and nostalgic way. I don't mean it in a derogatory, oh my God, this is horrible way. I mean it in a, um, okay, they made a table of contents, but uh, it just does not, it's, it does not show an attention to organization that would lend itself to a good table of contents. Sure. Um, and it is very textbook-like because it has minor sections in the table of contents. Uh, and uh, that's a good and a bad thing because if it's a textbook and it's going to be treated like a rules reference, then you need to have a way to find 
the material that you're looking for. But on the other hand, it makes it look like a gore mess. That is pretty fair. Um, uh, some of those you know subsections do really highlight the weird. Um, but um, I think I, I'm sure I talked about this at length every time we've touched on the second of DMG before, but um, there's some really surprising uh, like historical fiction or historical war game throwbacks in the text uh, that are another part of what captured my imagination because uh, I mean, I don't know, military history, 13 year old boy, you do the math. <laughs> right. Um, and that also includes the you know, huge page of medieval occupations, which is a great way to just learn new words or new meanings to words you thought you knew. Um, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. We're, we're going to cover all this. Just I, I'm trying to uh, paint the picture of my my relationship with this book and all that's in it. Um, <laughs> I love that there's a word about organization. <laughs> <laughs> One word in organization, uh-huh. many words and everything else. <laughs> Um, but what they're explaining is that they have tried to uh, make the organization of this book parallel to the player's handbook Mm -hmm. um, so that you can know what chapter to find a topic in by seeing what chapter it's in, in in the other book. If you, if you're trying to sort of cross reference them and that's, that's not a terrible idea in, in all fairness. Well, and there's one other good thing about this table of contents. Actually, it's a combo. Um, the appendices, they actually have spelled out in subsections just like the regular table of contents. So that's a good thing. Secondly, they have the tables page for the table. So they have just a list of yeah. all the tables, and which yep. I really like that because that is a great quick reference page. Like that is a page I wish was in every modern D and D book. I think that's pretty fair. I think that's, that's a pretty fair point. Um, I mean, it, it does highlight some of the, that needed its own table, did it? But sure. Fine, whatever. <laughs> sure. But <laughs> it's fine. Sure. Whatever. Yes. yes. Um, well, let's put it like this. Um, the, the, the book is what? 250 pages or so. Oh, oh no, it is much smaller than that. It is a surprisingly slim tome. Yeah. Uh, at 192 well, I'm, I'm pages, looking, I'm looking at the reprinted green edition. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so this is uh, the the earlier printing, mm-hmm. um, and as a, a mere 192 pages. Okay, uh, but there are 119 is, uh, tables. If third printing, <laughs> November 1992, is okay. what my book says. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the the green cover reprint. Um, um, but as so, said, so yeah, uh, uh, 119 tables yeah, in uh, about 200 pages or so, and even the yeah. reprint, which is 250 or so, 119, 119 tables. They need well, an index or or table of contents for the tables. Oh sure, uh, but you look at how there are there are some pages that have quite a few tables just on that one page. Oh sure, absolutely. Uh, yes, pages nine and ten are 
rife with tables, my friend, and I'm I, I'm just so excited to see all the ways that we can generate characters in this right. Uh, right. in this brand new edition, this second advanced edition. Mm-hmm. How ultra. Right. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> so, so I, I know this is a huge this is a huge trip through your childhood. Yeah, yeah. So 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 let's let's hear it. Well, so we get you know your your character generation methods, uh, and it's similar, interesting. It's interesting. To the this, first edition, right? Yeah, it's interesting that this is still regarded as DM facing, but mm-hmm. in fairness, I, I do think most campaigns want DMs to you know, be the the. Neutral arbiters of which system we're going to use, mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of fair. But um, here we see a whole bunch of three D six systems uh, treated as, I guess, the most default because they're the first four that are listed. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to method five, the one that everyone knows and does, because <laughs> get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, which is your 46 uh, drop lowest range as desired. Right. Um, and then there's uh, a method six uh, points plus dice, which uh, I mean, sure. Yeah. whatever. Who knows? Um, I mean, if you wanted to horse around, you know, you, yeah. whatever, it's fine. It's fine. Um, but you know, they're, they're acknowledging here all of the difficulty of playing a bunch of different classes. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's a significant part of the text. Right. Um, but. Uh, well, and you know, in, in these earlier methods where you're basically doing 3d six in order or 3d six, you know, whatever um, they actually have on the table, the suggested class that that character would be. And yeah. so basically that's, that's the, that's the, uh, defining that's the way you figure out what class you're going to be sure if you're going to play the optimized right yeah or you just roll it up and then you make the character you want (laughs) right and in in fairness i'd like to have a stern word with whichever gm made you stick with the number two and number four columns where uh they each have two scores that are in double digits Uh uh-huh right Folks. No, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, but remember that also this is this is trying to still pull forward a lot of the ideas of first edition, which was you roll, you get what you got. Yep. Um, yep. And it's I, not I it's that. not about yeah. it's not about you know creating the best persona. It's about holy crap, can you survive with those low stats? And then if you do, you're going to develop a persona through the game, and it'll be fine, right? Sure. Or you just throw that character all the way out, and you, you know, I mean, like, you know, there's there's the ideal, and then there's the reality of what's going to happen, right? Right, for sure. And you'll always find, you know, uh, Grognard. Grognard yeah. is here defined as mm-hmm. people who were playing before Sam. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, so before 1982. Yeah, uh, who will insist that that's the one true way that. Uh, the best characters, the really best ones, are the ones who are terrible at everything. That's that's the only way we can have a real experience. Right. And I mean, 
my eyes are rolling out of my head, so it's fine. <laughs> like, well, my eyes are rolling about the fact that it's a one true wayism. I really don't ascribe to that type of gaming, but yeah. I do understand what they're, you know, there is, there is something to be said for that style of play. It's, there's nothing wrong with that style of play, but to call it the one true way is the problem. Yeah. Um, I, I have no problem with people enjoying what they enjoy. Just maybe let's, let's tone down some of the rhetoric and, you know, gaming forums about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, on the facing page, there's a, a fine example of the really great full color art that is part of why I love the uh, the uh, core books of mm-hmm. Second Ed so very much. Um, obviously, with you looking at s- such a different printing, I have no idea what you're looking at. But well, which which uh, one is it that you're looking at? The, uh, I, I, I hope with it's the chest. Uh, I'm okay. I'm, I'm hoping you're seeing some people opening a chest. There's a demon's hand coming down, and the face is reflected in a mirror, kind of thing. Um, let me see. This, this would be on page eight of my copy, and God knows where it is in your book. So they've so they're they're shifted about two or three pages because because okay. my ability score star on page eleven and your star on oh, okay. page nine. Um, and I don't see a demon hand, but uh, okay. there are three people with a chest open and uh, it looks like basically a fighter uh, thief type monk character, maybe, and maybe a cleric. I don't, I don't know. Yep, That's a very different piece of art. There's no mistaking those for each other. Uh, It's fine. Um, Anyway, we can mostly skip the, Well, uh, it's sad that they uh, took that out. (laughs) Yeah. We can, we can skip podcasting about art this time. I guess. Sure. Fine. (laughs) Um, but um, once you get past the ability score generation uh, system, what I find really interesting is that then they launch into advice. And we talked a lot about Gygax's essayist. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of, to my eyes, it is clearing away some of the argumentative cruft of Gygax's style and getting straight to a hey, so you're you're new and feeling worried about how to handle some of these problems. Let's walk mm-hmm. through some of the problems you're going to face and tell you how you can tackle that best. Because um, it talks about super characters who are too powerful because of ability scores and how to deal with that, then hopeless characters and how to deal with that, dealing with, dealing with dissatisfied players and, and so on. Um, and I think that from a modern uh, sort of gaming culture perspective, there's plenty of room to quibble with um, the advice that's that's given here. But I'm really glad that the the arguments are getting made, mm-hmm. and like there's a a much clearer recognition that um, this is a book about advice and that advice needs to be about solving specific problems. Right. Problems that really come up. Um, we talked in the last episode about how much Gygax's like, uh, commentary was laying foundation that we still argue about today. Um, mm-hmm. There are still really quite significant uh, cultural rifts between tables um, and and such well 
I think that's happening here again. Uh, we're going to see some of the same arguments and some new ones um, that that Zeb Cook and the rest of that writing team, because I don't want mm-hmm. to uh, only credit Zeb Cook. Um, there's a there's, you have Steve Winter and John Pickens as mm-hmm. his developers, uh, Warren Spector on editing, um, then uh, a fair handful of uh, proofreaders, uh, including. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the still noted James Ward um, and so on um, and then a short list of uh, the many many playtesters that they worked with. Uh, remember when playtesters were numbered merely in the hundreds? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I think I think D and D Next was a a, a triumph mm-hmm. of just sure. absolutely. Okay experimenting with ideas and gathering opinions. Um, even if probably a lot of those opinions got shuffled off into the circular file, mm-hmm. but yeah. that's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I, I love that the book is trying to help you tackle problems. Um, and then you get into wishes and ability scores, uh, which other than, you know, the various tomes and manuals and librums of increasing your ability scores, which are totally a thing in second edition. Um, and the very small number of stat increasing, uh, worn items, wishes are how you increase your ability scores in, um, in second ed. Uh, and so there's, it explains the scaling system there, which really says a lot, I think, about how many wishes they expected you to be able to cast. It says some really shocking things about that because, yeah. I mean, the the play cultures that I'm used to, uh, a player getting one wish, like true, straight-up, italicized, one-word wish, mm-hmm. is a, a notable event. Right, right. Getting ten of them to increase your score <laughs> From um, from sixteen to seventeen, right. because you have to increase by by tenths per wish. That's bananas, right? But within that statement is hidden the fact that the expectation is very very clear, mm-hmm. especially when you get into the things about um, how high ability scores affect. Uh, demi-human advancement limits. Like, I don't think there's a lot of way to read the text that doesn't say, yeah, they're pretty sure you're going to have enough wishes that this is a going concern. And that's just wild to me. Um, not bad, just just kind of wild. Um, and then when an ability score is greater than 20, each wish raises only 1 20th of a point. <laughs> oh my god. It's fine. I mean, I mean, just at that point, wish for directions to a uh, manual of gainful exercise or whatever it is. Right. Whatever it's going to take to let you walk your butt closer to the thing you need. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, next up is players with multiple characters. And we did talk about that in the first at DMG because it's, you know, 
D&D still dabbling in troop style play. Um, and, and interesting because I'm, I, I, I can certainly be proven wrong when we get to it, but I am 97.5% sure uh, that all statistics are made up on this. No, sorry. That, um, uh, that it's not in the, um, three point, the 3.0 or 3.5 DMG, anything about players with multiple characters. I think that was just not something mm-hmm. they were writing about, which is super funny when you consider that the uh, the, the player's handbook was written by the same guy that created Ars Magica. <laughs> anyway, just funny old world. <laughs> um, it is a strange, strange place. So, um, so, so yeah, like if you haven't tried it, folks, I really do think that there's a lot to be said for, um, running an episodic campaign where PCs pretty reliably t- return to a home base at the end of each adventure. Most adventures are about one session long and players have multiple characters. I think there's, I think there's a lot of, uh, great stuff there, especially when it comes to um, player you know, player turnover. When a player has to leave the campaign and a new one has to come in, and you might or might not want them to come in at the highest level that anyone in the party currently is. Mm-hmm. Well, if the characters have you know alts over a spread of levels, then you have them play those other characters, and you know. Have fun with that. It can be really great. Right. It's definitely not for every kind of story, but when it works, it works. And I think that um, possibly where more modern published adventures fall down is none of them are built in that way. For sure. Um, None of the campaigns, I definitely agree, are, are built around that. Though I think you can make Dragon Heist and Mad Mage do it uh, fairly easy. And obviously you've got uh, Sly Flourish's advice to do exactly that for uh, Tomb of Annihilation once you get mm-hmm. to the tomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, and so when I say that none of the adventures are doing it, I mean nothing published by by Wizards of the Coast or or the other major publishers, which of which there are only a couple, right? Um, sure. There might be some third party small publisher or somebody publishing something on DMs Guild that is that is really well suited to that. Um, that I don't know about, of course, because I do not know everything. But in general, nothing published for second edition forward is built to really do that, to exploit that particular type of setup. So, so, okay. Um, uh, setting aside the fact that there are some adventures where I think you can get good mileage out of it in fifth. Mm-hmm. I will, I will put forth my argument on birthright. You knew it was going to come a up. Setting, though. It's a setting, but it was official. It was an official TSR release for real. Um, Right, but it's Wait, a setting, not an adventure. Uh, it's a setting that had adventures. Sure, but I, I'm specifically talking about actual published adventures because sure. I could say the same thing about Dark Sun. 
because Dark Sun. Uh, well, yeah, Dark is, Sun specifically wants you to create a stable of characters. Right, but that's what I'm saying. But that is a setting, yeah. right? I, I'm talking about the sort of standard issue adventures that yeah. are produced. Typically, I mean, are are written for a group of characters where the PC is played by one person, and that's the only character that that person plays. Well, right, and within a a single um, a single mission, mm-hmm. you know, not the the grand multi mission adventure of a hardcover, but within a single mission, I wouldn't recommend changing characters. Sure. Uh, unless something sort of unusual were going on um that's come up in my game um but it's it's not common and we don't regard it as ideal really it's just mm-hmm. well this this situation has just shifted from uh it, you know one of this player's characters you know, knows what the group needs to know so they can advance the storyline and now, you know the kinds of things this other character involved in have become the center of the plot. They had a chance to go back to their home base, so I'm going to trade out characters because it's going to be the best experience for everyone if I do. You know, mm-hmm. fair. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I'm not going to implement a system like this and then not focus on the best experience for everyone. Anyway, we're we're getting way off track. I I was I my Weird. intention was not to to completely delay us um but but my point is it's interesting that they have this type of advice in the dmg but then they don't really write things that are made for this yeah i I agree with what you're saying and i think that um it's here as a cultural throwback to um gary's style of mega dungeon play Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and not nearly as much sort of uh what they saw as vital to D &D and needing support going forward um but i mean now you've got me really intrigued with thinking about what an adventure that really wanted you to go full xcom would look like (laughs) because that's pretty cool um and you know, you've got um, indie games like Band of Blades, uh, of which I'm a huge fan, where um, characters can change hands from player to player. Um, but even if you don't do that, a single player is going to uh, control different characters from mission to mission. That is an absolutely necessary part of the game. You're not getting away from that. Um that's it's just an interesting thing. There's a discussion of uh, character background and problem backgrounds, mm-hmm. and I mean, uh, I, uh, the the problem backgrounds that they come up with, uh, problems of nobility and problems of wealth. <laughs> I, I love that these are here because, I mean, I have a hundred percent played with people who want to abuse this, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I've I've also played with people who. Like have an instinctive understanding of how to play a noble or a wealthy character and do it right, mm-hmm. uh, and, and like use that to make the game better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Then, I, but you know, I've I've played with people who want to use their noble status and their wealth to um, 
make sure the game spotlight is on them and make sure that they have the most levers they can pull. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the problem with nobility in game really is that the, the noble house structure, the, the Royal structure is very constrained and has so many rules that, um, uh, often the person who is playing the noble character, the person from the no- noble family, is doing it completely wrong. Yeah. Not realizing it, right? They think, oh, this just gives me power to order around peasants. Right. And get get uh, self-righteous if they look at me funny or, you know. And, and that's not really how it works. Right. Uh, the The amount of sort of um, cultural understanding of what certainly at least the GM intends nobles to be like in that campaign mm-hmm. uh, to say nothing of what you know, noble or phenomenally wealthy people should have been like in that period. That's, that's a lot to ask, mm-hmm. but if you can put in the effort to be on the same page with your GM, then, mm-hmm. uh, some really cool things can happen. That's for sure. Right. Um, yeah. And, and to be fair, I'm not just knocking players. I'm knocking G, you know, DMS as well, because oh, sure. if you set up a campaign where everything is based on nobility and Royal families and lineage and, you know, the divine right of Kings and such and such, um, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that, that the players, if they're playing, if one of them is playing a noble, they really need to know. Oh yeah, I mean, in in my campaign, there there are a very small number of nobles and then two royals. They are mm-hmm. in clear line of succession or line of fire, however you want to look at it, for <laughs> uh, ascension to the the crown of a very distant uh, kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a super big deal. It is a defining part of their characters, and it's awesome. Because, yeah. like, those two players and I really get each other on how this needs to look and mm-hmm. feel and how it creates stakes. It also it helps that all of the other players care about the fact that they are royals. Mm-hmm. And they bring that into the context of the game in really cool ways. This is not easy for every group. My group is magic. I'm sorry, folks. That's just how it is. <laughs> Yeah, you can't have them. No, no, back off. <laughs> and also, let me be clear: as long as the DM makes clear what the idea of royalty, nobility, and and all of that, how that works in the game, like you can play the nobles however you want. Like what I'm talking about is the more traditional idea of royalty and noble houses and lineage and the divine right of kings. Mm-hmm. That is tough if not everybody's on the same page oh yeah oh yeah i mean if you if you actually broke it down um anything that isn't we're playing uh full-on murder hobos requires some increased degree of like cultural understanding between the player and the gm Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. it's just that uh that cultural understanding is then backed up with 
in-game power and authority right. for the noble. Mm-hmm. And I could seriously do three hours on this topic. We have got to move on. This is <laughs> this is a huge thing for me because of LARPing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, we spend so much time talking about this in LARPing. Anyway, um, moving on. The thing I like about this section, other than our, our sort of tangent with nobility, to even talk about backgrounds, right? Yeah. Is something. Um, and right. it's not that backgrounds weren't talked about in the first edition DMG. It's just that it was more. Um, oh, Gygax had a very explicit expectation that a fighter was a fighter was a fighter. Right. And you were going to role play like a fighter as mm-hmm. if that phrase has right. semantic content. Right. Right. And uh, if you had some sort of background that gave you a skill. Yeah. Uh, like if your family is a family of fishermen and you happen to be a fighter, but well, okay, now you know about fishing. Like that's, that's the extent of background. Yeah, for sure. And this definitely like is more about engaging with the setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it ends on background as background. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Which I don't think I necessarily agree with. I think that if you're not, um, Leaning on backgrounds for story hooks, you're leaving money on the table. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is, by the way, why I love Rime of the Frostmaiden. For sure. Because yeah. the way yeah. that that the secrets get worked in there, it's like if you if you do it right and you have a group that's into it, it can be so brilliant. Yep. I, I like I like what goes on with backgrounds in Frostmaiden and mm-hmm. I like the dark secrets in Avernus. Mm-hmm. I think those are real slick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. So let's hit up chapter two. Reese's. Yeah. Man, <laughs> this is not my favorite chapter in this book. <laughs> I'm just going to say yeah. I don't love it. It um, has a pretty graph. Yeah. Cool. 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 <laughs> cool. Um, um, yeah. So, like, this has a, a lot to do and say about, like, the assumptions of a humanocentric world and, uh, like, how human is default, how humans can be anything they want to be and can rise as far as their ambitions take them, whereas everyone else has limits. And these limits are very relaxed compared to first edition. <laughs> yes, yeah, great. They're still really rough. Um, it, it's still a bad time. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. It, it's clear that the, the thinking here is we don't need to try to balance humans against the other player races. Them having the best advancement possibility is just inherently balancing. Mm-hmm. And no one will be upset about that, so we don't need to give them any features. Because it says specifically, if the only special advantage humans have is given to all the races, who want to play a human? Mm-hmm. Guys, you are the writers. Yeah. Design something else. <laughs> <laughs> right, but once again, this is one of those things that is carried forth from the previous uh, edition. And uh, don't I know it, man? 
just they could have made any number of other decisions. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I mean, I will. I, I dislike humans as the most adaptable ones so much um, that I would not like this now. But at the time, they really could have gone for something as you know, drop dead simple as you get one extra weapon proficiency and two extra non weapon proficiencies. And right. called it a day because at least it's something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, well, you know, but you recognize that um, you know in in AD and D, Gygax very specifically wanted a, a world or ran the game in a setting that was completely humanocentric. Like the whole idea was, humans are the majority population everywhere. And the reason that's the case is because they are so adaptable and therefore over time to bastardize evolution. Okay. Over time, that means that the other races are far less predominant. So you find far fewer of them in the overall population and humans continue to surge. And that's the way that he conceived of the game. And so because of that, um, that's the way it's written. And the, and they just carried that through without, you know, really trying to think about changing it, which is sad. Yep. Yep. So that's why I say it's a, it's a holdover from the previous edition because it's the oh, easiest I mean, thing in the world. to You're absolutely change. right. You're absolutely right. I, that That's, that's not a question in my mind. Yeah. Uh, it can still frustrate me here. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, to me, it's almost like to even put this section in the DMG is like an afterthought, right? Like it, they don't even need this two or three pages. I mean, it's already obvious from the player's handbook. Like there it is. Boom. It's the intention because they, because they don't, you know, do anything with it. They just put a pretty graph that shows the race and class level limits. Yep. And there it is, you know, so it's, it's almost like one of those. Well, yeah. Like, like you said, you're, you're the writers, write Something different, but yeah. You know. But yeah, I mean, they're literally railing against their own handcuffs. That's mm-hmm. fine. Um, yeah. but just remember, we don't have to do that again. Um, right. <laughs> so, uh, there's a bunch about like creating new player character races. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of funny that they don't get into explaining why the race should be humanoid is important. <laughs> Though it is, it's mechanically important, right? Mm-hmm. Because of how charm person works um, and hold person. But in addition to that, um, th- things that aren't at least uh, f- fairly human shaped are going to have, problems that are going to become the center point of that encounter. If you're okay with that, rock on, but mm-hmm. do understand that you're asking for situations where the the character's body shape is the whole problem to be solved. It's the centaur on a ladder problem, folks. <laughs> right. But notice it says an orc or a centaur is acceptable. Oh, I, I see it. I see it for sure. <laughs> and, and, and you know, in fairness, they're going to commit to this when yeah. they release um, the complete book of humanoids, mm-hmm. right? Um, they 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 
absolutely believe what they're saying, even if Complete Book of Humanoids is a huge step back on making level limits more generous. Right. I digress again. <laughs> um, I don't really want to like deep dive on their suggestions for, for creating races, though. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a lot to be offered there. Uh, there's not really anything innovative, so I'm not sure it's even worth talking about. Though their idea that uh, uh, tiny, uh, small, medium, large, huge, and uh, gigantic creatures could adventure in the same party is adorable, but not practical. Well, and extremely laughable when you consider the the 2.5 edition, you know, combat tactics spells and magic <laughs> yeah. and all that. Like, oh, well, well. <laughs> I, I'm not going to hold Zeb to that. That's that's uncharitable. I, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. As I said, we don't need to talk about yeah. that. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's it's cute. Let's let's talk about a giant. Uh, you know, adventuring with a fairy, tiny fairy. Okay, right. whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I really will drop this, but I remember uh, the complete book of humanoids. I think it was uh, referenced the idea of so you have a hill giant buddy who's stuck in a hole he can't climb out of. <laughs> what do you do? Like, what do you do? Mm. And and as anyone who knows about getting uh, you know quadrupeds out of a hole knows the answer is you fill the hole with rocks. Slowly. Anyway, I'm really done with this now. We're moving on to chapter three. <laughs> moving on to chapter three, I swear. Chapter three, player, player character classes. classes. Um, so zero level characters are a part of the game. Not everyone has a class and level. And that's that's important to them here mm-hmm. for reasons. Um, I could yeah. feel a lot more comfortable with their... Uh, zero level hit points by title table, as they've as they tell you how many hit points mm-hmm. uh, a disabled person and a right. child have. So how hard it is to kill them? Why are we doing this? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, honestly, this is one of those. Th- this does not need a table. You can just say that zero level characters have one d eight hit points. Done. You're done. Yeah, no problem. Could, it could be done here. It's fine. Yeah. But no, yeah. no, that needed uh, all this mm-hmm. time. Yeah. In fairness, uh, first level wizards need more than 1d4 hit points also. <laughs> I mean, they literally have as many hit points yeah. as a disabled person. So, okay, that's a choice. Yes, That is that is a choice. Also, Don't the worry. wording for the disabled person is, a, you know, yeah, the, the worst word. It, yeah. One of... One of the wor- the worst word for physical disability is just that's you know. yeah. yeah. I'm I'm making my choices here as I try mm-hmm. to yep. move along the conversation. Mm-hmm. So so the next page in my book, page eighteen in my copy, uh, mm-hmm. starts a section that I actually really like. Um, I I find really um, really helpful in thinking about what these classes mean in the setting. And it isn't that should be the same thing for every setting, though the first several settings of second edition, it means reasonably with the same thing, more or less, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it goes through you know, e- each of their classes. Um, 
curiously deciding not to split off druids from priests, but <laughs> whatever, it's fine. Um, so, so fighters, paladins, rangers, wizards, uh, priests, thieves, and bards each get um, a, a few paragraphs, um, maybe as few as two, maybe as many as um, a bunch. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> Uh huh. Yeah, wizards get uh, a fair bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, wizards and fighters—they've they, got stuff to say about um, about how they fit into society and how common that class is among you know mm-hmm. people who are not adventurers by trade, right. and maybe how many of them do become adventurers by trade because thieves are common, but most thieves are adventurers, um, mm-hmm. and. The material on on these three pages is going to have a really substantial impact on setting creation in Second Ed, and that matters because Second Ed is known for its settings, right? Like more than any other thing that we can like point back to about Second Edition. Now, I think we would say that they poured everything they had into the settings. And that may or may not have been an acceptable financial strategy at the time, but boy, did it lay a foundation for D&D's future um, by giving people a ton of different things to be a fan of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Um, so the, oh, the, there's, there's one part I found really, really funny when I was skimming through the book today. Um, So in the section on wizards, uh, it describes wizards as the most iconoclastic and self-important of the character classes, for they are unique among all character classes. The peasant can pick up a sword and fight, a pious man can hope to serve his faith, a local wag can spin a good tale, and an unprincipled cad can rob the local merchants. But no one other than a wizard can cast magical spells. Excuse Uh Um, that, that is the most specifically wrong thing (laughs) because if you're willing to count casting from scrolls as casting spells, there is only one class in this list that does not cast spells by 10th level. It's fighters. Well, but even forget about that. What about priests and druids? Means well, clerics and, and druids. And even if you're just going to take it down to when we say magical spells, we only mean arcane spells. That still doesn't work because of bards. Right. So what is happening in this line? Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, I know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to set up the air of importance that wizards often have. Sure. Provide a reason for it, and that's that's all it is. Well, this is player facing material. This is not DM facing material. But it's literally not. I, I know, but I, I'm just saying, like this paragraph, this paragraph. It's wizard be. propaganda. It's wizard propaganda. Right. It, it, it totally is. Yes, yes. It's on. It's on Wizard Fox News. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> there are a lot of wizards on Fox News. I think there we can are, probably yes. that. That just that. Mm. A lot of thieves. A lot of thieves. <laughs> yes.
charlatans. Yeah. So, anyway. so I do love the the discussion of kind of wizard culture because mm-hmm. that is my deal, guys. Like, <laughs> I really, really love the the ideas of a society of the wise and wizards who are always quarreling over basically fantasy academia. I ran mm-hmm. a lot about this. It's my deal. So, like this, this did really imprint on me, and I've loved it forever. Um, I I just kind of wish that they had like given the same level of um, these guys can drive the plot in uh, you know just as fun of a way and have as much fun stuff to gather for all the other classes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and they can drive the plot. It's really just that. The spell collection mini game is, uh, it's just hard drugs for me. Mm-hmm. I'm man, I'm hopeless. I mean, you know. So what's really funny is, given my profession in real life, I do not find the wizard academy, uh, and wizards fighting with each other about the most ridiculous, you know, uh, petty, uh, to be. Um, enticing at all (laughs) but here's what's funny about that i love it because that's the answer to why do these wizards go adventuring (laughs) because all of the other wizards in the academy are jerks petty bastards (laughs) really good so i remember what i was going to say about uh, why one of the whole whole thing about settings sorry because i I finished what i was saying and then i was like i was going somewhere with this yeah no um so um the point I wanted to make is that all of those settings are going to proceed to have so many NPCs receive a class and level. Right. They're mostly not going to have any named NPC be zeroth level. If they have a name, they're at least a first level character mm-hmm. in some class. Right. Even if that doesn't make a ton of sense for them. Um, and that's like, they're, the number inflation around level to equate character level to importance is really going to run away with them. Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of, it's kind of like watching the seeds get planted for the problems of forgotten realms. Right. Mm-hmm. This character is a 23rd level wizard. Well, fine. This character is 24th level wizard. Right. Screw you, piss ant. <laughs> Yeah. Is is kind of the the sense of it, right? Because mm-hmm. there are all these big bads, and uh, it kind of undermines the need for PCs to do the hard work. Right. And that's not what they meant to do. It's mm-hmm. just it's a problem that generations of players have had with the realms. So maybe it's actually a problem. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Um. There's a discussion of high-level characters, uh, including above 20th level. Um, and they, they sort of discourage you from trying to play above 20th level. This is not going to survive through all of 2nd edition. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, the high-level campaigns book exists, but also mm-hmm. you've got the, the whole Arcane Age setting for Forgotten Realms. Right. Where 20th level is entry level. Like... You start to matter at 20th. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's also a sense of people wanted to see what could happen at 20th level. 
right? There's a, there's oh, oh, a sure. sense of, oh, yeah. I've been campaigning for this long with this character and they're super powerful. Now I want to do something really, really different. Like, let me see what I can do. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not, I think that um, the ethos has moved away from that in recent years. I think, I think it, with fifth edition specifically, the, the sweet spot is much lower than 20th level. And I think people are not as interested in above 20th level. Like they're, they're not pushing for, Hey, we know that you stopped the game. You stopped character progression at 20th level. Let's go beyond that. I don't see anybody asking for that. Uh, there are a couple of DMs Guild products for it. Uh, I don't think that that's where the community is. And there's a bunch of reasons for it, up to and mm-hmm. including Wizards of the Coast published adventures don't do it. Right. Um, but even in Second Ed, no one was saying 20th level was the sweet spot. Right, right. Um, well, no, I, di- I didn't mean to imply that uh, because yeah. 20th was the sweet spot, that's why they wanted to go further. I just meant that... Um, people played second edition long enough and often oh, enough sure. to get characters to higher levels, which is and, mind blowing considering the just very large numbers of experience points you had sure. to have to, to get there. Sure. Sure. But in any case, they do suggest retirement. <laughs> yep. Um, and, and that's, that's pretty good advice. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to, but I worked all this time. I want to enjoy my power fantasy now. Thank you. Right. That's that's not an unreasonable position for a player to have, mm-hmm. as long as everyone's having a good time. I mean, if you can get to twentieth and say I don't feel the need to keep advancing in level, I just want to be the superhero that I was always promised, mm-hmm. and I want to play with that mm-hmm. for a long time. Right. I mean, go for it. Whatever. That's great. Yeah. Um, and we get beginning character levels, um, mixing old and new characters. This is a major concern in my campaign. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I remembered this text <laughs> magically. Maybe yeah. not, but I did follow it when uh, a, a new player was coming into a major showdown in my campaign. Um, the, the other characters were, you know, seventh to ninth level, somewhere in there. And I just didn't have the heart to tell this very good friend of mine, no, you should start a first level character. <laughs> yeah. That would, it would not have maybe still been this very good friend of mine afterward. Right. And so instead he came in at fourth level and wound up being um, the MVP of a couple of things <laughs> just because of like incredibly clutch spells yeah. that he happened to have. It was great. It was a really good experience. Um, to to him, I think, um, and then we get the two very weird pages, very very weird. <laughs> the creating character classes, creating a new character class. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, you know, the the here's the thing, though, right? And and I. Uh, and and I kind of feel the same way about um, the creating new races section um, is that I feel like the intention is to give the DM a way to 
create something that doesn't already exist. Sure. For sure. And I think that is a noble intention for the designers. Yes, I agree with you so far. Specifically with the race section, I don't think that it was um, accomplished. I, I don't. I don't think that the. I think the intention was more noble than the result. Um, and sort of similarly, the PC class section. I think the intention is is great, but the execution leaves a little bit. Uh, on the table. I'll put it that way. Yeah, fair. Um, you know, I, I, I do, I do like the advice, right? Yep. Um, uh, you know, they talk about how, you know, when you're considering creating a new class, you know, you really need to think about the fact, you know, is the class really needed? You know, and they give the example that, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of players would would pine for a new character class, but it's really just uh, a role, not a class. So you know, a Viking is really just a fighter with some flavor, yeah. and a witch is is I love this sentence. A witch is really nothing but a female wizard. Really, um, okay. Uh, that is still um, not a settled question. No, I, I know. Uh, and a vampire hunter is only a title assumed by a character of any class who is dedicated to the destruction and elimination of these loathsome creatures. I mean, so, you know, there is some decent, there's some decent advice. Yeah. Um, and then you get to the mechanical bits. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. and, And I mean, the other thing that is so striking about that exact argument around, uh, jesters, witches, vampire hunters, Vikings, mountains. Mm-hmm. You you can tell that this text is written without the faintest idea that they're about to come out with kits. Right. Yeah. That, that the <laughs> next the next book yeah. released after this and the monster manual is going to be the complete fighter's handbook. It's it's kits from here on out. Just just no thought. Oh, it's just that moment of innocence <laughs> and purity of all tinkering with class abilities and skills mm. to try to balance something else. It's right. fine. Yeah. It's weird. Um, and that's and, an artifact of, of maybe one person's ideal not being, you know, the way that they chose to go forward. Right? Sure. Well, and I mean, looking at those design credits and uh, development credits, a lot of this was probably uh, Zeb Cook, like sitting in front of his typewriter, mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. not a word document typewriter. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, like hacking this thing out and sending it to uh, the, the developers and the book that comes next after this isn't written by him so he doesn't yeah it's not not available yeah yeah anyway um (laughs) there's not a lot of like going forward interest to be taken from from this section um except to say that maybe they could have stood to you know think through some of the the points being made here when they were making kids Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, right uh we get chapter four 
This is another one that's going to both oh. entertain me and make me sad. <laughs> Alignments. Align- your favorite topic. <laughs> is it? Is it? <laughs> uh. Uh, well, so to the audience, here is one of the, you know, Brandis and I disagree a tiny bit about some minute details of some of these topics, right? And in, in our geeky way, we can, we can, in the most you know, a friendly way disagree and say, well, yes, but this detail means that. And, oh yeah, well, that's a good point. Okay. Let's move on. In alignment, we actually have a real disagreement because I think you think they're worthless. Uh, That's correct. (laughs) And I see value in them. I, I think that um, in the best case scenario, it is, narrowing the options that people consider and then the worst case scenarios are used as uh, justifications for characters doing things that they should understand to be horrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they then write off as either but it says good on my character sheet or but it says evil on the NPC's character sheet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that any good you're getting from alignments, you can get without the downsides some other way. Uh, well, that I don't necessarily disagree with. Uh, but, you know, once again, this is a legacy idea that's coming forward. Uh, and... You know, as we've seen with the more modern editions, it, it basically gets kind of, you know, relegated to the dustbin of history. Uh, and, and it gets given a nod, but it's really basically ignored um, in, in more current editions. But, you know, yeah, you know, that's what's funny about our disagreement is I, I don't necessarily disagree with the premise that you are putting forward. I do agree but I feel like if it's done right, you can make alignments work. Mm. They can work in the game. Because here's here's why. This actually goes back to our nobility discussion, right? Okay. Because yeah. saying that somebody is, you know, you know, we talked about how, you know, if you have a royal line or if you if you have nobility in your game and you're you're talking about working through that and that the DM and the players have to be on the same page and they have to understand how the nobility and royalty work in that setting to make it work. It's the same thing with alignment. And alignment is part of what shows you the rules about the setting. And so I, I don't want to get into a huge long argument about this, but I will say this. In basic D&D and in 0th edition, there, were only, there was only chaos and law. Sure. The, right? the, the Morcock alignment system, right? Right. And so you basically either tended toward organization and goodness and non-entropy, or you tended toward the chaos of entropy. And in general the chaos of entropy can be associated with those who have a more malign or selfish tendency and those who who tend toward or lean toward the law side have a more uh, 
I don't want to say altruistic, but uh, more, you know, maybe a more insightful idea of, of, of what makes a good society, so to speak. Um, and those are very good generic buckets to be able to put things in to get a framework for a setting, right? And that's also true of the alignment system in second edition. It's just that, as you pointed out, it gets abused and it gets used as manacles, right? It's one of those, it's one of those places where the rules as guidelines really, really actually is true. Because rather than using the alignment system as a manacle to shackle somebody, you should be using it as a type of guideline to help a player learn how the creatures in the world see that world, see that setting. I I guess, man, I'm I I'm gonna have a hard time backing up on this one. The, and the, the second at DMG is, I think, not going to do you any favors in the argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially once you get to changing alignment and effects of changing alignment, because people change, people make decisions that can be interpreted more than one way. People don't always understand their own motivations and they never understand the outcomes of their actions because there are always more outcomes than you can understand. Mm-hmm. So if, if you can have only an impressionistic idea of, your own motivations and self-deception is a real thing mm-hmm. and you can't know the outcomes. I mean, what do those words mean? But the, the effects of changing alignments in uh, the second of DMG are really outstandingly punishing. Um, well, see, and once again, see, this is where you get into the area where, you run into the problematic place where, well, if a player is not having their PC act the way I want them to, this is a way to punish them. And I don't agree with that. Right. right? That, so that's why I said, if you do alignments, right. Okay. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, like, I think that is, is putting you in the position of arguing that uh, alignments can be done in a way that has never been put on the printed page, but that's the right way is, is kind of the one that, that you've created for yourself and that's fine man like that don't get me wrong there's plenty of stuff that i do that i think is right that's never been put on mm-hmm. a printed page by tsr or watsi um and that's that's how it is just uh i i think we can probably agree that alignment based around alignment languages is a nonsense version of alignment Oh sure. Um, alignment where, like, you flirt with being neutral good instead of lawful good for a while because I don't know you're feeling a little cynical for a few days, but not cynical enough to be chaotic or evil. Just it's a little cynical, like like halfway cynical. Uh, and now you have to start your level over again. Well, yeah, right. no, see, like, like that—that's a version that's not workable in third ed. The the deal where uh, you you can't advance as a barbarian if you uh, become non chaotic, I think, or or is it if you become lawful? If you become lawful, you can't advance as a monk if you 
ever stop being lawful. You can't ever advance as a paladin if you stop being lawful good. Um, that's real super restrictive. Right. Well, that's why I'm saying like, I I'm saying that part is not good. Right. right? But, and, and, and I, and I, I hesitate to say that my way is the one true way. I'm not trying to say that either. What I'm saying is I have seen alignments used in game usefully and well and done well and not punitive. And so for me, like, to, to have alignments in the game is not a big deal. And I know a lot of people have had bad experiences with alignments and, and I have, I have some, you know, I have sympathy for that. And I think that's really cruddy and I feel bad about that because I see alignments as a useful tool in my setting. Whereas I think, you know, a lot of people used it as a way to punish characters or a lot of players found it as a way to, punish the rest of the team by acting like a jackass and saying, oh, well, but sure. my alignment says whatever. And I'm not, I, I'm saying none of that is good. The, yeah. the fact that the alignment system as written pulls that out. Yeah, that sucks. That's bad. But yeah. I'm just arguing as with anything, there is a way to make this part of your game that works for you and your group sure. without having to include these horrible elements that we're talking about. You I, know, it's kind it's kind of like the, um, the horribleness of uh, of the, the the harlot table or whatever oh, the hell, yeah, right? Yeah. Like what the f- nobody's gonna you know don't use that. Sure. Uh, yeah. And the and and the and the sex change girdle, right? The girdle of sex. Like what the f- okay? No. Yeah. Right. Like you I you mean, just don't. I mean, sex change is the most embarrassing thing that can happen to a character, Sam. Well, right? that the the problem is the problem with the thing is actually not the sex change. It's the fact that men would get so pissed yeah. about suddenly having their male character turn into a female. Yeah, for sure. Or would go around acting like she's a prostitute, right? Right. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and that's f***ed up. People suck. So, yeah, people suck, right? So I don't know. I, I just think there is a way to use alignments that, that is that is better than, than maybe. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm in a pipe dream and it's, yeah, I can use alignments in a way that's never been put to paper that works. But like so many other things, what works depends on the era, the table, the DM, the group and, and the dynamics of everybody there at the time. Right. Like that's, that just matters. It matters. Yeah. And I mean, I I also, man, I I don't, I don't want to like keep this going any more than we absolutely have to. (laughs) Uh, It's a whole damn chapter in the book. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, when you get to society alignments, th- that that is so massively problematic mm-hmm. that I, I I sort of don't know how to engage with it anymore. Um, there, there was certainly a time when I w- would accept. Well, that's that's a tendency. It doesn't it, it doesn't mean more than it means, mm-hmm. and and now all I can see is excuses for open fire um but like that's that's me that that's me changing in relation to the text changing in relation to the text is part of the experience of mm-hmm. engaging with the text um but uh, anyway like I, I definitely accept that uh for you alignment is a valuable tool and i just 
haven't seen the those applications in my own experience. It's totally okay. Mm-hmm. It's totally okay. Um, just like I, I tend to not want players to try to categorize themselves by alignment um, because well, and- I, I want them to be open to making like bad choices that they come to regret, frankly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and okay, let's be honest. You've been listening to my game. I don't mention alignment a single time, probably. No, no, that's, right. that's not a thing in your, your yeah. actual dialogue. Yeah. I, I don't use alignments in, in that way anymore, but I've been playing for a long time. It was a long time when we used alignment and I had to work through how to do those. Right. And, and, um, you know, it, it, there's the, there are memes now, right? There's alignment memes, right? They, they've got the nine grid, you know, square and, and, and it'll, it'll show you like, you know, oh, here's, you know, a burnt toast, you know, sure. and really dark black is like chaotic evil and, you know, barely toasted with butter on it is like lawful good or something, you know, um, uh, yeah. and you know what I mean? And it's just oh, it's such do. a meme. Or, or, or all the superheroes, right? It's got superhero pictures in each one and it'll, it'll label them, right? And I, I hate that as a meme because it really degrades the value of what alignment was, I think, intended to provide. I can't say what, what it was providing because, as you said, a lot of people did not – a lot of people used it as an excuse for bad behavior. Yep. Right? So anyway, so we can move on from, from this. Um. It's uh, it's actually you know it's what's funny is it's a huge chapter for the topic. I mean, yeah, I feel like yeah. it's very long for the topic. I, it might be the longest like discussion of alignment in uh, in the core in any of the core books. Yeah. And what's surprising me is that there was a there's a whole section that I guess must be in the player's handbook that I had assumed was in this book because mm-hmm. uh, you know brains. Um, <laughs> but it's talking it's trying to help you pick an alignment for your character mm. and so it's it's the extended scene of if you've got an imaginary party with one character of each alignment oh god um it, like it says don't do this this is not something that would happen yeah. just just go with us on this and they they like fight a gorgon and find a um a, a jewel and some other assorted treasure. And they talk about like each character's motives for being on the adventure and like, how each character deals with the fight and the treasure and so on. And it's a, it's a real hard push for, uh, don't play evil characters, guys. It does not work out well for any of them, except maybe lawful evil. That guy's okay. Yeah. That's in the player's handbook. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking but, at it right now. So, but like the fact that I can uh, go through as much of that now as I can tells you something about how much it imprinted on my memory right. Uh, right. 27 years ago. Sure, <laughs> and, and, and I've and, read it since then. Yeah, and I'll admit that um, that Elima imprinted on me as well, and and part of the reason it did is because I find it fascinating. Okay, okay, I can tell reality from fantasy, right? Sure. I know the world is not set up in these alignments, and so for me, having it written this way 
way back when, when I was first, you know, when I was looking at the 1E DMG, having things written out this way and putting things into categories, like it was fascinating to me because yeah. I would, I would try to do that in real life and put things in categories. And actually it was a great tool for me to learn as you were mentioning before. Well, you know, people sometimes act differently based on the situation based on the audience, based on, you know, the audience, based on people in the area, right? Who they're around, right? People wear different hats. It's just a fact of life. And so therefore, sometimes they make decisions that don't match what you thought of them. And to me, I find that fascinating because it's a fascinating um, glitch in humans. Yeah, And I use that word glitch on purpose. I mean, it's an it's an enneagram. It's a Myers Briggs, mm-hmm. right? Sure, sure. And, and, and the memes are using it for exactly that. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, and 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 like I said, I, the reason I hate the memes is because it sort of it 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 kind of cheapens the idea, and it turns it into exactly the thing that's ripe for the abuse that you're talking about. Sure. Well, and. You know, it's it's lampooning the, uh, the the player bad behavior while also sort of unsubtly saying this is the culture. Right, right. Um, right. Now, the one place where I do uh, use alignment in a largely unspoken way is mm-hmm. the, the cosmic alignment stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get to like, planar alignments and um, the individual alignments of planar denizens. Um, I'm not going to be the one to say that, you know, really functionally every single um, creature that dwells in uh, uh, the, the, all the circles of hell mm-hmm. is lawful evil in D and D, but I'm strongly willing to you know, run with that as a, a tendency and an inspiration for how encounters should go mm-hmm. because that is pretty interesting to me to have these like once it's abstracted to things that are definitely not mortals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and don't need to behave like mortals they can they can be driven by rules the way fey are right or demons or devils or angels or archons or whatever that's great this is exactly why I find alignments useful is because exactly for the reasons that you're talking about, you know, one of the, one of the best campaigns I, I ever ran had the, it was a Planescape campaign and the players uh, were going to different planes. And if, if you didn't conform your behavior, not your actual alignment, but your behavior to the alignment of the plane, it had weird effects. Sure. So, you know, if you weren't acting in a way um, that that had that that comported to the alignment of where you were, when you traveled, it would not be the tip. You know, it wouldn't be the same amount of time. Like there was there was this one um, game that I I, I, this game they were I can't remember where they were, but it was uh, uh, a um, it was good aligned and they had done something and they, one of the players decided, well, uh, we were doing this thing and we're not going to give this character a share of the money 
that we got from doing this task because they were off doing something else at the time. They weren't in the room. They were doing something else. So they didn't get part of the gold. So the next, and so I didn't say anything. So, okay, fine. You, if you don't want to give your, your teammate his, you know, his part of the gold, fine. And then later on, when they went to go travel, it started taking them forever to get where they wanted to go. And they kept looking at the horizon and they would feel like after two hours of travel, they were exactly the same distance away. And then two more hours, four more hours, they were exactly the same distance away. And then they finally realized, oh crap, we did something wrong. Like we are not aligning to the behavior that's expected on this plane. So we're not, our behavior isn't being acknowledged. It's like we're moving, but we're not even moving. Yeah. And you can't do that if you don't have a standard behavior for that alignment, right? Um, I would I would handle that uh, through the ideals, bonds, and flaws system rather than alignment. Mm-hmm. But I take mm-hmm. your point, and right. But back then, <laughs> that didn't exist back then, right? So I couldn't. No, I, I get you, and I. I I will absolutely concede that I was speaking about interactions in the prime material plane between mortals mm-hmm. and not like not talking about once you get um, immortal creatures involved, because that does absolutely change mm-hmm. how I engage with alignment as a system. But that's also really not what this book is talking about. Oh, sure. No, no. I Yeah, of course. Well, we're off on a tangent. Big surprise. Oh, boy. <laughs> Are we ever... <laughs> <laughs> so chapter five chapter five proficiency is optional <laughs> <laughs> i feel great about reading this chapter already <laughs> i just think it's funny that that's right in the chapter name <laughs> it's right there um but like that's that's a, a unintended consequence of including a subheader in the um, in in the very like top of the page, I don't know why they did that, but that's fine. It's about proficiencies, <laughs> and we're going to get back into words I can't say in a smooth way on air because you know, oops, um, non-weapon proficiencies. <laughs> um, but um, this is going into the weapon and non-weapon. The, 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 nope, nope, can't do it. <laughs> and the, the weapon and the non-weapon thingies. <laughs> the, the thingies, yep. It's, it's going into that. Uh, and, um, you know, there, there's all kinds of things they want to say here. Uh, but actually, they don't really say that much. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what, three or four pages of nothing. Uh, it is actually less than that for me. It is, is it? two facing okay. pages. Yep. Yeah. There's there's some art in here uh, in this one, so um, it's it ends up being uh, three with art on two of the pages. So. Now, there's an example of why longsword and shortsword proficiency should be different proficiencies and purchased separately, which is fair but also annoying, <laughs> and I, I think we all owe it to ourselves to not make. Uh, a rule is any more annoying than absolutely necessary. Um, it's the second column yeah, of I, I the see. first page, and it's 
it's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, like helping the whole book to stick in my imagination because it is uh, describing describing an action scene, even if it's describing it as being a failure. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, but it was that sort of uh, willingness to engage in examples and uh, visual description that was something I really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, honestly, my visual description game could still use some help. Um, well, so I'll say this about this particular example that you're talking about. Uh, one thing I could see it doing is teaching a DM, a new DM, how to make the case for their decision. Yep. Right. Um, and not just a, because I said so, or because that's my decision or whatever, but actually a, you know, an actual rules based, you know, idea. And here is my decision because there it is. And, and I think there's some room to question whether that's even the, the best way for things to go. Like, the the best solution to having an argument over whether uh, long sword proficiency should grant short sword proficiency is not now you go into a combat and you fail at everything. Right. Sure. No. I yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that assessment. I, I'm just saying in terms of the examples that you're talking about. Right. Just yeah. in general, the fact that the writing of this book has so many examples like that, where it's just a couple paragraphs. But it's trying to prove a point about why they rule something that way and how the DM could then make a decision and and justify that decision yep. based on a logical conclusion, right? Um, that type of critical thinking, uh, let me tell you, it's not exactly widespread. Um, Folks were recording this that I mentioned on the 4th of November <laughs> – <laughs> I'm just saying it, it, it's true, right? Because um, it's not even that people can't do it. It's that they don't exercise that and it's not something that they use. And so it gets lost somewhere. And so reading something like this, or if you're young and you haven't really developed it yet, reading something like this actually provides a way forward for how to reason out something. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to do it well or that it's going to be perfect or that you're always going to make the right decision. It's just an example. And humans learn by example. Yeah. And, I mean, th- there's a little piece of it that's also uh, reminding DMs to, like, if you're going to be in a rules fight, don't be afraid to throw an elbow because your players came at you with some kind of dumb arguments. So, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. M- maybe you got to. Like maybe you got to be willing to have that fight yeah, if that's yeah. your play culture, and I'm really glad not to have that as a key part of my play culture anymore. Right. I I much prefer, you know, a a negotiation where everyone remembers that we want to create the best experience for everyone at the table. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But remember though that this text was coming off of first edition and in first edition, it says this is the DMG and the player should not be reading it. Yeah. So it's assumed it was assumed at the time. Well, then the player's not reading it. 
So that means that the player's not going to be able to have these arguments, right? Well, the player will have arguments, but they're not going to have this book at their disposal to try to help them make their own counter argument. So that's the, that's the sort of mindset that it's coming off of. Yep. Um, there's not a lot else for us to talk about here. No. It's, it's, it's a lot of text that doesn't, express a ton yeah i mean this is one of those where um you know uh this is a whole entire chapter when it's really just addressing a little tiny component and they probably could have taken some of these smaller chapters like this and put them into one chapter as you know miscellaneous ruling notes or something or miscellaneous guidelines and you know, considering that the frickin' table of contents has every subheader and all that, they could have done that easily with the miscellaneous chapter. Well, there's right. also a chapter called DM's Miscellany, in, in fairness. Right, but you know what I'm saying. I, I, no, I'm agreeing <laughs> with you. I'm absolutely agreeing yeah. with you. Like, yeah. That would have been a perfect place for uh, some of this. For, for that, yeah. But um, they, were, they were trying to do parallel structure, right? Right, right, chapter exactly. Five yeah, to yeah. Chapter 5. Yeah, 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 sure. I get that. Um, but you know, eh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this chapter, we literally already covered in the economic section, the economic episode, um, until we get to quality of equipment and we get to the horse breeding mini game that I still can't believe is here. The, oh yeah. The horse quality. Well, you know, (laughs) horse traits, optional rule. (laughs) Why did you do this? <laughs> well, they did it because there's going to be a long, uh, a long description of of horse of of horsemanship later on, right? Jesus Christ! Isn't there? <laughs> Is there? I think so. There's going to be a lot of discussion of cavalry. Yeah. Well, there you go, and that and that talks about like you know, pluses and minuses and all that. To- it, it does not. That is not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, it talks a lot of yes, <laughs> about <not> horses. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, why not, why not have a horse quality episode uh, before that? Right. <laughs> Honestly, we need to be doing uh, the, the history of horse qualities through the through the editions. Yeah, I think so. That should be its own series. <laughs> I'm convinced, man. Oh man, uh, God! See now, I'm looking for. Oh God, I, I don't. I don't know. I don't okay. know why it has this. So, so let's get back to the start of chapter six, since I guess we're doing this. <laughs> oh, don't blame Fine. it on me. <laughs> oh, oh. You were so getting blamed. <laughs> Fine. Money and equipment. <laughs> well, like this chapter starts out with monetary theory. Controlling the money supply? What is happening in my world? <laughs> <laughs> like the next thing I want is you need to know the geographic location of the mints in order to understand inflation. That's what I need. Uh, yeah. A short, a short history of commerce. But – but I actually love it, right? Um, because, mm-hmm. like, for me as a twelve-year-old, 
this was great. This was this was a whole set of thoughts I had not had before. Right. Tell you what. Like I, I knew what the words meant, but just um <laughs> I didn't know anything about you know, monetary theory or like like it, it wouldn't have occurred to me because what I'd played at for that point was right. mostly JRPGs. You know, the really early Final Fantasies and Dragon Quest kind of games. Those don't have that idea of alternate reward where like well we don't have thirty thousand actual pieces of mm-hmm. gold to give you. We're giving you a letter of credit ticket kind of thing. That's not it's not part of those games. And so like this is another of those things that has lodged in my brain where it talks about mm-hmm. letters of credit mm-hmm. as a way to receive payment. And yeah, it does actually like causal hitch in my brain when uh, an NPC might need to um, pay the PCs this enormous amount of money. So, so yeah, you have you, uh, like, oh, oh, there's this other bit. I, I don't think I actually read this when we were doing the economics section, but um, when I, when I read the, the fifth ed DMG, um, I, I literally laughed out loud. I did an LOL in my mm-hmm. real life uh, when uh, I got to the section on types of coins in the 5e DMG because some clever person remembered this book <laughs> and copied the line, uh, people give coins names, whether as plain as dime or as lively as gold double eagle. <laughs> yeah. And – like uh, since we're talking about how stuff lodges mm-hmm. in my brain, uh, if you if you want to know what, what my brain is like, listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, like that exact phrase had stuck with me as though etched into adamantium, and I knew it instantly when I saw it on the page. And I was just so surprised that apparently it had meant something to someone else enough to copy and paste it <laughs> into this book. That was a thing, man. Uh-huh. That uh-huh. happened. Um, but then you get another of these great stories, right? That is so good for firing mm-hmm. my imagination as a, a kid. Um, Aquitaine. The story of the mercenary captain Aquitaine. And it, and it says something, I think, that um, Zeb Cook chose to set it in uh, a, a historical fiction world and not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Greyhawk or right. who knows, Blackmore or, or Forgotten Realms or whatever his favorite setting was. Maybe mm-hmm. his favorite setting was Fantasy Earth. But you, know, he, you get this huge story about all these different types of coinage and um, – even the denomination mm-hmm. uh, exchanges. Um, and he's just trying to inspire your imagination with, Hey, coins can be weird. It's right. fine. But um, it was also just a sort of window into medieval history for me that was of course going to appeal to me, you know, as a kid it appeals to me now. And then we get into expenses. Well, I I love the I love the coin 
part of this because uh, yep. the thing that sticks in my brain and I, for whatever reason, right? Like, and I played a lot of first edition. I played some second edition, but by the time I played second edition, I didn't read and reread and reread and reread the second edition D and G like I read sure. and reread and reread and reread the first edition D and G. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, what sticks in my head is of the ancient coins, the Roman solidus aureus was the model for the Besant and thus nearly all other coins. It was turned into silver denarii with 12 to 40 equaling a single solidus. Like, I remember that whole solidus, like, yeah. segment. It's good. And, you know, for what, for whatever, who knows, right? Like, but that's just one of those, like, oh, yeah, that's stuck in my head, right? Well, and, and I especially love that one because now I want to go have an argument about it because of Diocletian's monetary reforms. <laughs> Because I listened to Mike Duncan's History of Rome, and like that is now part of the the, the weird alchemical mix that's, that is my brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like, it's such a great episode when he explains about Diocletian's reforms because you suddenly understand where feudalism came from. Right. It came from Diocletian. Mm -hmm. It's not a wizard did it. Diocletian did it. <laughs> And and I think that like if I could have said that to Zeb when he was writing this in presumably about 1988, uh, he'd have been like, "Yeah, you're right. I'll just change that one line." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's great. Like, I, I love that so much. Um, and that also gets that also sort of matters for the equipment by time period uh, mm -hmm. table, which is just a couple pages later. Um, and is sort of trying to help you, you know, understand how to think about everything that your mm -hmm. characters have as technology. Right. Right. Um, you know, all the way down to when are glass bottles available? Right. You, you know, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I could quibble with that. The Romans did plenty of things with glass. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's not, not important right now. Right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but yeah, I yeah. love this section uh, for you know charting out when things first appear. Um, I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. This is the kind of stuff that fires your imagination when you're a young person yeah, trying to. If you're me, that's that's for damn sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this kind of stuff too. This is the same. This is the same kind of stuff as the reason why I like the, um, you know the the building strongholds and the, and the palladium book of weapons and armor and all of those things. Like, it, nice. I just love this. I soak it up, you know? Yeah, um, man. And it's, and I it's stuff it. like this, right? Like, well, when was this available? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then we get to the <laughs> next page. I've been going on about all night. <laughs> your, your favorite. So, so, so folks, it, it starts with quality of equipment, right? Mm -hmm. Because equipment could be bad or good or great. And that's totally reasonable. It's just the equipment that the, the chapter decides to care about is a little strange. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not super weird because okay, like if you started listing an adventurer's equipment and what it matters to have work really well, locks and horses are reasonable things, mm -hmm. but horse quality gets <laughs> two tables. And a, a full column sidebar. Uh huh. 
What? <laughs> like, this is bananas, and I love it. Um, it like, it, it is really just, I guess, I'm in a horse breeding sim. Sure. <laughs> I just, I just want to know which traits to get to pass on to the foal. Let's do this. Yeah. Because that's not even that unreasonable for late game second edition, right? right? Once you've got a stronghold, breed horses, sure, go for it, whatever. <laughs> Here's the thing, though, right? And 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 I know that you're, I know where you're going, but this is another way for the DM to punish a player. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> right? Oh, you bought a horse. You didn't. You didn't realize there were risks to your horse buying. Let me roll this d10. Man, oh, for, this for horse. Sure. This horse won't gallop. You yeah. do not get the uh, the benefits of a gallop out of your horse. Or oh, this horse chews fences. <laughs> Everywhere you go, it's going to freaking chew something up, and you're going to end up paying damages. <laughs> That sounds like Tadius from your game, man. Yeah, <laughs> he's just hungry. He's very hungry. <laughs> but but like the fact there's a risks of horse buying section, right. like <laughs> you're going down a crazy Alice horse mart. Here. I love that. <laughs> I would never do this to a player because my players would not talk to me again after they spent four hundred gold on some right horrible horse, right. <laughs> It's amazing, but you know, if you have writing proficiency, then you can use that to figure out mm-hmm. that's a bad horse, right? Right. But here's what that means: now, when the DM's doing their prep, they have to know how many horses are in that stable and what is the characteristic of each of them, so that when that character makes their check, the DM can say. Here, there are seven horses, and here's the characteristic of each one. I mean, you would describe how it's acting or whatever, but yeah. you know what I mean? Well, like, uh, now, Sam, in some settings, that's a problem. But in Forgotten Realms, Volo has it covered with the local Volo's guide. <laughs> yeah, don't go to uh, Slimy Sam's horse stable. Well, buy- by a horse. Uh, Volo is here to tell you that if you go to Slimy Sam's horse stable, <laughs> you want to go to the third stall. That's the best horse in Slimy Sam's uh, right, horse right. stable. He's it has a two horseshoe rating. Right, yes. I'm exaggerating, but uh. you don't know by how much. <laughs> <laughs> Not much. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on. Um, so we get weapon quality and ornamentation, um, yeah. and you know more real world hi- real history notes. Damascus mm-hmm. steel, literally the first time I'd ever heard of that. Yeah, probably yeah. true for a lot of readers, mm-hmm. which is yep. pretty cool. Um, then damaging equipment, item saving throws. You can't see my face because we don't do this streamed, but <laughs> it is not abused. <laughs> Oh yeah. man, this is this is not not a recipe for fun. This is a recipe for punishment, right? But see, here's the thing, though, right? This is this is brought once again. It's another thing that's kind. Of, it's it's a way to play that's brought in from the previous editions, right? And let me tell you how. Let me tell you how this could be used to good effect in a game. 
Okay, now I'm not talking about the rules that are written here because I haven't read the section in a while, but just the idea of damaging the player's equipment, which sure. you find really distasteful, right? But here's the thing. Maybe instead of having a critical hit take a character out, sure, you, you let it destroy their equipment instead. Sure. Right? And, and I have no problem with that if that is something that the players know is a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Sure. My, my issue is much more. Uh, okay, you've been hit with a fireball. Now I need to te- now I need to roll a saving throw for all right. of your gear. Sure. Not sure. do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. No, no. I and, and and I get that. I'm just saying, like, there to me, this is once again a place where the idea of the rule, the idea of thinking about damaging equipment and and saving throws of certain types of equipment can be useful yeah it's just at this point in the game's history the implementation is more punitive than yeah well i i'm just going to include a joke that is for an extremely small number of (laughs) listeners here uh but i bet i can make my wife laugh from the other room which is item degradation is why lee hammock left fallen earth That is an extremely deep inside joke. But for the listeners who get it, I I hope they're not driving their cars because they will crash them. You just caused three accidents. Yep. Well, on the good news, the the good news is this is going to be on about December the twenty seventh. They're probably not driving yet. Right. Right. Uh, Folks, I really hope you're listening to this on time because if you're listening to it late and I cause a car wreck, I'm going to feel kind of bad. <laughs> pre- pre- pretty bad. A little bit bad. You're going to feel. You're, well, nobody's going to have an accident. Make sure you hit a Trump Penn sign on the way out, and it's fine. <laughs> oh boy! Remember, folks, we are recording this on eleven four. Eleven four. You know, we don't, we, we actually, we don't normally say when we're recording it, we kind of allude to the fact that it's at the end of the year or whatever, but today we just can't help it. We have to say when it was. It makes a literal difference in everything we're experiencing right now. It does. It definitely does. Me, doom scroll while recording? Maybe. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. All right. Oh, I think that's going to be it for tonight's episode. Uh, so let's end here then. That that sounds good. Um, I think a great note to end on is one where you make Rabbit respond from the other room. That's, that's <laughs> perfect. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, all right. So, well, thank you listeners for, for sticking with us through the um, various tangents that we went on today. If nothing else, I can say that the second edition DMG provides Brandis and I a lot of conversation fodder to go off on tangents. <laughs> that is incredibly accurate. It may be because there are so many tangents in the text. Possibly, possibly. Um, and so, my good friend, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. I also write for tribality.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. And you can find me at DM Samuel. 
on Twitter, and you can find me at rpgmusings.com, and you can find me on The Tome Show, and uh, you can find me on the DMs Guild. And um, I think, I think, I think that's it. Right. All right. Sounds good. All right, folks. Wear your masks. Black Lives Matter. Uh, Wash your hands. That's a good one. Rabbit was pointing out to me the uh, uh, playing your characters alignment section of the player's handbook. She also remembered it clearly, but uh, <laughs> she remembered where it was in the book a little more clearly than I did. Yeah, well, folks, if I have any advice for you, it's this: marry well. Uh, you know what? I did marry well, and so I have that advice for our audience yeah. as well.